As we get deeper into the pandemic, vaccines that can limit the spread of COVID-19 have emerged. With the news of two new vaccines authorized in Canada, there has been lots of discussion surrounding the safety, efficacy, and contents of these vaccines. My name is Miranda. I'm a Bachelor of Science student and lab assistant at McMaster University. I've been very interested in the development of COVID-19 vaccines because when working in a research lab, it's hard not to be fascinated by the amazing scientific breakthroughs that have followed this pandemic. I have noticed in recent media outlets and when talking to people, many individuals hold skeptical attitudes towards being vaccinated for COVID-19. I understand where these people are coming from and I think that these are healthy skepticisms. This vaccine has had a very fast development process of only one year. Usually vaccines take multiple years to develop and get approved. I'm here in this series of I Don't Know Much to discuss the recently approved COVID-19 vaccines, the myths and media that have been highlighted in the news, and shed light into the amazing scientific journey these vaccines have undergone. While I know that some people will decline the vaccine without knowing what it's about, I also know people will willingly take the vaccine without knowing what it's about. I am here to provide information that will allow everyone to make informed healthcare decisions for themselves, whatever they may be. In today's episode of I Don't Know Much, I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Caitlin Malarkey, an assistant professor at McMaster University, whose previous research has focused on viruses. We discuss what it's like to be involved in a COVID-19 vaccine clinical trial and some other general questions regarding the COVID-19 vaccines. Our discussion was so great that it deserved a part one and a part two, so please enjoy part one of my conversation with Dr. Caitlin Malarkey. Hello, everyone. In this episode of I Don't Know Much, I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Caitlin Malarkey. Dr. Malarkey was my professor at McMaster University for my third year introductory virology course. And I have to say that's what sparked my interest for viruses and vaccine development. So I'm so grateful to be speaking to her today. Dr. Malarkey, thank you so much for being here. Would you like to further introduce yourself for the audience? Great. Thanks, Miranda. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, my name is Caitlin Malarkey. I am an assistant professor in biochemistry and biomedical sciences at McMaster. Uh, my background is in vaccines and vaccine development. So I trained at the Jenner Institute, um, which may ring a bell as it's the institute that's responsible for the AstraZeneca adenoviral vectored uh, coronavirus vaccine. And um, uh, while I was there, I worked on flu vaccines, and I continue that in my postdoctoral fellowship. Um, so I have a long history of working in viral immunology and vaccine development in particular. And now, uh, I, as you mentioned, I, I teach that. So I teach all things viruses and immunology, biochemistry, cell biology um, to undergraduates at McMaster. Yeah, and there's amazing courses. I've taken many of them and um, have. it's been a great learning experience especially with the COVID-19 pandemic. But so uh, you have some exciting news to share with everyone today, and that's that you've been recently enrolled in a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine clinical trial. So yeah, that's you, right. Yeah. So can you tell us more about the company and the vaccine um, and things like that? Yeah, sure. So um, I am enrolled as a participant in Medicago's phase three study for their 
VLP-based um, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. So this is a vaccine that is produced in plants. So the, the uh, protein is actually produced in plants. Um, it's VLP-based. So basically when they make the spike protein in these plants, it forms a virus-like particle. So it looks to your immune system from the outside like a virus, but of course it doesn't have any infectious material. Um, and it's an adjuvanted vaccine. So this is being developed. Um, so Medicago is a Canadian company based out of um, Quebec, but it's the trial is being done in partnership with GSK, so GlaxoSmithKline, and it uses one of their adjuvants, so their ASO3 adjuvant. So it's a VLP-based adjuvanted vaccine. Um, so I mean, to expand a little bit more on the, the actual trial itself, and then maybe I can tell you about, you know, my, why I decided to enroll, yeah. but um, the trial itself is a blinded crossover study. So essentially you don't know, they enroll um, participants into both the placebo group and then also into the group that will actually get the vaccine. They follow the participants out you know, for several months to see who actually goes on to get, um, you know, COVID-19. And then after, after about six months, they cross over the participants. So if you were in the placebo group, you then get the vaccine. And then if you're in the vaccine, you get the placebo. And, and that ensures that the participants are still blinded, right? They don't know what they got. Um, and it also gives them a chance to actually get the actual intervention. Um, so they enroll participants at a ratio of one-to-one. -one, so it's like you have a 50-50 shot of getting the vaccine. And it's two doses, three weeks apart. So I've already had two doses of something. Um, wow. And I mean, I have some hints about what, what group I might be in just based on symptoms and okay. reading the side effects from their phase one study. Right. Um, but I don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. I don't know for sure. Uh, and obviously they don't know for sure because it's, it's blinded only the, I think the nurse that it actually administers the vaccine knows what you, what you get. Okay. That's good. I guess eliminates any bias. That's really cool. So, so how did the process go in terms of enrolling and getting the vaccines? How has it been? Yeah. So it's been, so I initially had heard about, I'm familiar with Medicago as a company. They mm -hmm. have um, actually a flu vaccine platform that's very similar, this VLP based um, platform to make flu vaccines. And, and as I mentioned before, I, you know, I've spent a long time um, working on flu vaccines. So I was familiar with the company and actually, um, and I don't know if, if Miranda, you went to the talk at the BBS research symposium by Brian Ward. I didn't so Brian get the Ward, chance. Yeah. So he's the chief medical officer, I believe is his official title, right. but he gave a keynote at the, um, the biochemistry and biomedical sciences research symposium. And he talked about the vaccine. Um, so the vaccine has already been through phase one studies, right? Which is um, safety and immunogenicity. That's the first thing that, that we look for. Um, and he mentioned that they were enrolling and they were actually starting a site in Ontario, right? Because it is a Quebec-based company. Um, so I, he, a, an advertisement basically went around the department because of the talk that, that, oh. that Dr. Ward gave. Um, and, you know, it was like, if you're interested in, in enrolling, then contact this, this particular research clinic. Um, and, and it was really quite smooth after that. I called them, they gave me an appointment. Um, there's obviously an initial intake to make sure you meet all the criteria for the study participants. 
but you know, it's been, it's been relatively smooth and uneventful so far. Wow. That's great. I saw the advertisement and I was really thinking about it. Um, but there, I didn't have a way to get there to Guelph. Yeah. I think so the, the site, site is in, in Guelph. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a trek from, from yeah. Hamilton, but that's so amazing, especially because is this one of the first ones to be actually happening in Canada? So it is one, of, it's like a homegrown Canadian vaccine, mm-hmm. if, um, if you like. And, and so, yeah, so obviously one of the issues with vaccine rollout in Canada has been that we are reliant on the supply from outside of Canada, right? We don't yeah. really have vaccine manufacturing capacity. And so we need, we rely on places to send us doses or companies to send us doses. So yeah, right. So this would, um, you know, if the trial were to go well and the results were to indicate that it could be approved, this would be a vaccine that would be made and manufactured in Canada. So is that one of the only benefits of this Canadian company starting? Because there's already like four vaccines that have been approved in Canada. Is it really just the fact that it's going to be here and easier to distribute? Are there any other benefits to this company doing this? Um, I mean, I think, you know, the more vaccines we have, the better, yeah. obviously, at, you know, and while we are making a lot of headway in terms of vaccination and vaccine rollout in developing, in developed countries, you know, the, the vast majority of the world population um, doesn't have the same access that, that we do in North America. So, you know, in my mind, the more vaccines we have, the better, um, the more that are approved, the better, obviously, that will also create market competition, it will, will hopefully drive down the, the price of some of these vaccines. Um, so I think that's definitely an advantage, um, as well, uh, of having this um, Canadian company produce a vaccine. Right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what kind of Besides that talk, was there anything else that prompted you to participate in this trial? It's kind of, I know you said it was used for the flu, but this is the first time it's been used for COVID-19. Were, was any part of you worried also or anything like that? Yeah, I would say that my motivations in enrolling the trial were a, a combination of altruistic and selfish. Um, so in the, in the first part, you know, I've been involved in clinical trials from the investigator side. Um, so I've, you know, we've, I've had vaccine strategies that we've trialed in phase one studies that have gone on in, in phase one to, in fit to phase two. So in some sense, there was part of me that, you know, wanted to give back, right, mm-hmm. to, to feed that forward. I've been on the other end where we've relied on volunteers to come and participate in our trial. And part of me wanted to be on the other side of that and also um, contribute in that way. I think that because I've been involved in the clinical trial process, I also have a lot of faith in the scientific process. And I, I know that if these are moving into a phase one and phase two study, there's been a lot of, a lot of work, legwork done ahead of time um, to make sure that, that these are safe and that, you know, th- that I can be confident in, in the process. Um, so, you know, I think that's the, the altruistic motives is wanting to give back to science and participate in, in a way that I've relied on volunteers to participate. Uh, the selfish motives were, I did the calculations, you know, I'm in, I'm in my early thirties and I understood that I probably wasn't going to be eligible or offered a vaccine until June. And I think that's still about the timeline that I can expect to be vaccinated um, or eligible for vaccination. And I basically had a 50, 50 shot of getting vaccinated mm-hmm. several months ahead of that. 
So that was my other motivation was like, well, you know, if, if the odds are in my favor here and I happen to roll the dice and it comes up vaccine instead of placebo, I'll be fully vaccinated in April. Um, and I'll, that would, you know, expedite that timeline. So I won't pretend that, you know, that it was completely for the benefit of others. There was some selfish motivations there as well. Yeah, I feel like it's hard not to have that, especially right now when a lot of people you know are getting vaccinated and things like that. So I have a question about the timeline. So if you, like a couple of weeks ago, had both of your doses, when would be the time that you get the, when the crossover happens for the study? Right. So it is a little, um, if it goes to plan, not for a while, it's probably more along the fall timeline, something it's like around 180 days is when the crossover happens. But the big but here is if the vaccine receives emergency approval in any country where it's being trialed, so not just in Canada, because it's also being trialed in the US and South America, there are several um, different sites. If there's emergency approval, then the crossover happens sooner. Um, It can happen sooner. So there is a chance, I think, you know, there, I think the hope is that it happens sooner that that one of these countries um, does get emergency authorization to use it. Mm -hmm. And then the time, the crossover timeline would be, you know, hopefully in like June, July, August. Cool. So what kind of, what kind of data has been shown about these the vaccine that you got mm. and or like placebo or the vaccine for the trial and what would be needed for this kind of emergency use basis how long I know it's been kind of different with some of them with the vaccines that are already approved so what's that like for this one Yeah, so um, the phase one results are actually not published yet, but I did read the paper on BioArchive, so it's on one of these preprint servers. Um, And the results are, in terms of the immunogenicity, I mean, I was super impressed with, which was also another reason why I decided to enroll, because it looks like a good vaccine. Um, I'll, I'll also note that, you know, one of the benefits is this ASO3 adjuvant mm. that is used and, and um adjuvants are are well known to increase the breadth of the immune response and also the magnitude of the immune response. And and, uh, so that, you know, I think speaks very well for this vaccine. So the, if you look at the um, preprint of the phase one study, uh, the antibody titers are that the two doses generator are very good. uh, And they're along the, the comparison that most of these phase one studies have been making are to antibodies in, in patients that have recovered, right? So antibody right. levels in convalescent sera. Um, and the antibody levels exceed what you would see in patients that have already had SARS-CoV-2 and recovered. So it's certainly very immunogenic and it's it not only does it um, induce high titers of antibodies, it induces high titers of neutralizing antibodies, which is what everyone's usually looking for in terms of Mm -hmm. um, correlates of protection and all of that. So that's what, what, that's the the work that I've seen so far. Now, in terms of like getting the vaccine approved, I mean, what they'll be looking for, right, is the different rates of infection in placebo versus the vaccinated group. Um, And I, what was done with the trials for Moderna and Pfizer, right? They had an interim data analysis. They actually 
were approved based on their interim data analysis of the phase three study. So the phase three study didn't completely end, but they looked at the interim results after so many months and they could see there, there were significant differences in the rates right. of infection in the placebo versus the um, vaccinated group, right? The group that has the intervention. Um, so I imagine that's exactly what's going to happen here. At a certain point, they'll do an interim data analysis and hopefully the results you know, would be an, would be significant enough that the governing bodies that, that approve vaccines would, you know, approve it. But it's probably, you know, it's, I don't know how long the vaccine trials have been going on in Quebec. The one, the site in Ontario really just started vaccinating people in the end of March, beginning mm. of April. So I, I feel like you would still need a few more months, but I can't speak to how long they've been going on in Quebec. Maybe right. they've been vaccinating people since January and they're already to, um, they already have a significant number of patients enrolled. Now, what's, again, what's really important in those interim analyses and with clinical trials in general is that you have enough power, right, to see significant differences. And that means enrolling enough people. Right. So what gives these studies increased power is an increased number of participants so that you can be confident that the results are really due to the intervention and not just, you know, by chance. Yeah. Do you know um, how many participants they have for this trial so far? Anything like that? Well, I can, I can tell you just based on my conversations with the research group at the Ontario site that they've only enrolled, they enrolled about 300 participants at the Ontario site. I, I couldn't tell you what they've uh, um, enrolled in Quebec or right. again, the trials are going on in the US and also now in South America in Brazil. I don't know the numbers there. So do you think that our clinical trials something that the average Joe could probably participate in? Because I know this advertisement got sent to a lot of people in the Institute of Infectious Disease Research at McMaster, but I'm wondering if someone was interested in participating in this trial, would they be able to? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this really just comes down to like where the trials are being advertised, as, as you said. Right. And um, my understanding, again, this is based on my conversations with some of the, the staff and the nurses at the clinic that's running the clinical trial, um, is that they've been advertising in the community through family practices. Mm. And that's where a lot of people are hearing about the vaccine um, and coming in to enroll. So absolutely, they're open to anybody that, you know, that meets the, the criteria in terms of age and any sort of um, exclusion because of pre-existing conditions or right. anything like that. Uh, I think, in you know, again, when I was, I did my graduate work at the Jenner Institute and they are a really well-oiled clinical trial machine. And there is something to be said though about people who have a more familiarity with science and more fit familiarity with the scientific process, having trust um, in clinical trials and an willingness to enroll. So in a place like, you know, not unlike Hamilton where there's a lot of students, there's a lot of graduate students, at Oxford, there are a lot of students, a lot of medical students, a lot of um, students involved in medical sciences, and mm -hmm. they overwhelmingly they seek to enroll in the clinical trials. And I think I think it's a there are a few reasons for that. The, but the first is that you know they understand um, the risks, they understand what's gone in to get to get to that point of trialing something in humans. Um, but they're also students that are cash poor. And that's another reason why they, yeah. they get money too. <laughs> right. So I did see on the advertisement that there is compensation 
even though it's a voluntary thing and you have this opportunity to get a vaccine. And I was really interested. In, I, I had no idea that that was that. Yeah, that's that's very common. Right. Um, and a lot of the times there it's compensation for your time. Right. Right. So um, because you've you've gone in and and for X number of appointments and been there for X number of hours, they're compensating you for your time and your travel. And that that's really, um, you know, that's, you'll see that in pretty much all clinical trials, that the uh, amount of compensation typically reflects the level of intervention and the level of time commitment. So in some trials, depending on the samples that they're collecting, um, you can, you know, the compensation is, is much higher because it might mean that you have more blood draws or they might have to right. do a bronchiolar lavage procedure and, you know, you're being compensated for your, your time to do those as well. Yeah. So yeah. when I was um, a graduate student, one of the highest paying trials that students would enroll in were the malaria challenge trials. So these are malaria vaccines that you, experimental malaria vaccines that would be given, and then you are actually challenged with malaria. So you, you would be infected with the parasite, and then they would observe whether or not you would go on to develop malaria. Um, in this case, the strain of malaria that you're infected with is very drug curable. So uh, even if you were to get infected, um, they have ways of, of controlling um, and clearing the infection. Although, um, and, you're, and, and you're being closely monitored on top right. of that. Um, but those were studies that uh, because of the, again, level of commitment, the level yeah. of intervention usually paid out pretty high. So um, malaria, malaria is really, really, really interesting. And I'll also note that the Jenner Institute also just had a very successful malaria vaccine trial um, of the R21 vaccine uh, in, it was trialed in Africa and it, it's like 77% efficacious at its wow. highest dose, which is one of the, it's, it's the most effective malaria vaccine that, that's, that's been um, trialed to date. Uh, and they, that was actually made while I was at the Institute, one of the, another PhD student, um, another graduate student who I worked with at the time actually made that vaccine. Um, but malaria, this is, I, I, and I understand that I've, I'm rambling at this point, but malaria, re really interesting. I mean, the, the parasite itself, the, the plasmodium is, is very complex. Um, it expresses lots and lots and lots of different antigens and lots of different antigens at different times in its life cycle. So the parasite, when you're infected with it, right, you, you, it's transmitted by mosquitoes, you get bitten by the mosquitoes, the parasite enters into your blood, but then it homes immediately to your liver. So it's not in the blood for very long, you know, the, the estimation there uh, in, in how long it takes the parasite to get from a, a blood vessel to your liver is like minutes. And then oh. when it, it replicates in um, your liver, and then after exactly six and a half to seven days, it, it erupts from the liver. And that's when you're actually symptomatic with malaria. So it's a very, very well-timed process right. that once you're infected at six and a half to seven days, if you're going to get malaria, that's when you can start to observe the, the, the parasites in the blood again. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, you get infected and, and I worked with many people that enrolled in these clinical trials and they get infected and then, you know, for a week, like maybe you're going to get malaria, maybe you're not. Um, but every day you have to give a blood sample and every day uh, you give a blood sample and they're looking for parasites in your blood. 
Wow, that's so interesting. I had no idea that's how that parasite worked. Yeah, and and so why I say it's the malaria vaccines are so complicated. The antigens that express the parasite expresses in the blood stage is different than the liver stage. Oh, um, so there are there are at least three kind of groups of vaccines that people are trying to make for the malaria pathogen, and they're usually referred to by the stage of the parasite that they're trying to target. So you have blood stage vaccines, you have liver stage vaccines, and then you actually have transmission blocking vaccines. And the transmission blocking vaccines work at the level of the vector here, which is the mosquito. Mm. Wow. Really so, complicated. Yeah. But really, really interesting. Very yeah. complicated, but very interesting. Yeah. But you mentioned that they were working on this vaccine. And I heard about that in the news that the clinical trial did really well. But you mentioned that they worked on this vaccine when you were in, you they were made in it, the lab. Yeah. yeah. And so, so it's it's actually unique. Most of the, the Jenner Institute works on viral vector-based vaccines, so using viruses as a delivery platform. Um, but the R21 vaccine is actually made in yeast. Oh, cool. To so like where it replicates? That's how they actually produce the antigen. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So they're using the yeast to produce the antigen and then the antigen is, is given in the vaccine. And I believe that that vaccine is also an adjuvanted vaccine, but I would need to double check that. Mm. So, but yeah, so, and just take, looking at that length of a process and then, looking at how fast the COVID vaccines Mm. have come out, it's truly, it's amazing to me. And I got my, I got a dose of the Pfizer vaccine a couple of weeks ago because I live in a hotspot in um, Etobicoke and just going through the process, it was so heartwarming and it was so, it was amazingly efficient. And it just, i as just a human, it just warmed my heart because just thinking about how fast this process was and knowing how long it can take. And it was, it was really amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the speed with which we've been able to develop, approve and deploy these vaccines. I, when the pandemic started about a year ago, I don't know if I could have predicted that it would be this fast. It it really has been incredible. Yeah. Yeah, very, very amazing. I don't think anyone could have predicted it. Yeah, so I have another question. What? So you said this vaccine technology, virus-like particles, and I know that they, they you said that they use plants to produce this. So what does this kind of, I know you said it's used for flu vaccines. Does this type of technology mean anything else for future vaccine development? Is it really new? So, um Using plants as an expression system for antigens isn't particularly new. Okay. Um, and that's, um, you know, there's our, we can point to a lot of cases that plants are used to express antigens that we might use in um, research labs. I mean, if we look at the different types of vaccines and vaccine delivery platforms, there are certain advantages and disadvantages to all of them. Um, but, you know, plants, the plant-based system in some, it, it is, so in the, originally the plant-based system they used to make a flu vaccine. So Medicago had a flu vaccine platform that's based off of plant expression. Um, and that makes sense for some of the issues that we encounter with flu vaccines. So flu vaccines are typically made in eggs. Um, and that places some really powerful constraints on the vaccine development and the vaccine development process. 
And one of the issues with flu-based vaccine, flu production, flu vaccine production in eggs is that you can get egg adaption, egg adaptations of the virus. So when you actually grow the virus in eggs, it adapts to the eggs. And, and as a result, it can change the immunogenicity then when you go back into humans. And that has been a problem for our seasonal flu vaccines, um, particularly our, the H3 strains that, um, are, that have developed egg adaptations and then don't work as well. Mm. Um, so that, I mean, that's at least one of the advantages um, of this plant-based expression system some people are allergic to eggs and egg proteins and, and therefore vaccines that are made in eggs aren't, aren't viable for, for those individuals. And, and this circumvents that as well. Right. Cool. Yeah. I think that the egg is probably a rate limiting step in the process. Oh, so, absolutely. So I mean, it's nice one. Yeah. So the, the production of flu vaccines in eggs um, in addition to the, the potential for egg adaptations, right? It's a very time-consuming process, right. which is why we have to select our strains so, so far in advance right. of when they're rolled out into the clinic. Um, so processes that get around that, whether it's cell-based or now is what may very well be mRNA-based, mm-hmm. um, are able to circumvent that. Cool. So going back to the shots that you got, do you so you said you had some idea of which one that you got. I got the Pfizer vaccine and I had just soreness in my arm, no fever, no nothing. Both my parents had AstraZeneca and they both had a slight fever. So I'm curious mm-hmm. as to, did you have any reaction to the shot that you got? We don't know which one it was, but. Right. Yes. So th- the short answer is I had absolutely zero side effects, which makes me think I'm in the placebo. Mm. Um, And the reason for that, there's two reasons for that. The first is, um, again, I read the the phase one immunogenicity study, and I looked at the adverse reactions to the vaccinated group and and the vast, vast, vast majority of people that are vaccinated experience some sort of side effect, whether that is, Mm. you know, soreness at the injection site, fever, you know, myalgia, just to name a few. So basically four out of five people will develop some amount of symptoms. So I, I, it's possible I could be that one out of five that, that doesn't have any yeah. reaction to it, but I didn't have any soreness in my arm. I didn't have any, you know, fever, chills, nothing. Right. Um, so that lends me to believe that again, that I'm, I may be in the placebo, although again, I don't know for sure, mm-hmm. um, but it is really I'll tell you, it, it's striking because when you get a vaccine, you have that very classical sore shoulder, right? Mm-hmm. You get that shot in your deltoid and it aches and it's, you know, it's <laughs> stiff and it usually for at least 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. And I always attributed that in part due to the fact that somebody shoved a needle and put some fluid in your muscle yeah. and surely that would make you a little bit sore. Turns out that like, that's just all your immune response. Yeah. <laughs> like all of, and, and which was, I guess, I, I think a little more surprising to me mm-hmm. than it should have been. Like I should know better that it's your immune system that's making you feel crappy. Um, but I was really surprised by the, the lack of soreness. So I guess if you just 
put some saline in someone's deltoid, it really doesn't do very mm-hmm. much at all. Yeah, because you think it's a muscle, you're gonna have a reaction no matter what, but guess not. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> but but apparently not. Apparently not. And I like, you know, I kept doing the the, the arm raises <laughs> and kind of the you know touching my shoulder to feel if maybe it's a little is it a little sore? Maybe yeah, I feel something. And it was like nothing, just nothing, mm-hmm. absolutely nothing. That's so funny. But, you know, somebody's got to be in the placebo. Yeah. And maybe, maybe it wasn't the placebo. Maybe, maybe yeah. I got some sort of, you know, but if it's not the placebo, then I would be worried about my immune response. Right. 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 Because if you feel, you know, if you feel crappy, that means your immune system's working and you're probably zero converting and your germinal mm-hmm. centers are doing everything they should be. Um, so, but you know, time will tell. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. I'm looking forward to knowing which one. <laughs> So if any of the audience was interested in any of the topics that we discussed today about the clinical trial and Medicago's vaccine technologies, you can visit medicago.com. That's M-E-D-I-C-A-G-O.com. And it's really fascinating stuff that they're doing. And so it's so cool to hear about their clinical trial and how that whole process works, because I think a lot of us don't know. And so it's really fascinating. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of I Don't Know Much. This was part one, so make sure to listen to next week's part two podcast episode where Dr. Caitlin Malarkey explains some final information regarding the vaccines, including information surrounding the four-month wait for the second dose and why we might experience worse symptoms for the second dose of the vaccine. Stay safe, stay smart, and see you next time.